Hello, welcome to my podcast. In this episode, I discuss the war in Ukraine with Anatoly Karlin. He's a prolific blogger, intelligence researcher, and Russian nationalist. Eight days before the invasion, he penned a widely read essay, Regathering of the Russian Lands, which was mentioned in the New York Times. You can find him on Twitter and Substack. Okay, Anatoly, in your essay published on the 16th of February, you predicted that Russia would win in a matter of weeks or even less. Uh, you since become much less bullish on a Russian victory. So why did the initial phase of the war not turn out as you predicted? Uh, there were several uh, several reasons. Uh, I think the main uh, the main one basically is uh, a uh, that was uh, far from my own mistake. If you look at the miraculous. Uh, prediction records, for instance, that's prediction markets. Uh, then the chances of uh, of uh, Odessa falling to Russia uh, by uh, was something like ninety eight to ninety nine percent for for much of not just February but uh, but March. So basically, there was a, a massive uh, overestimation of Russian military power, which was uh, compounded by uh, some pretty strange uh, decisions, such as. Um, uh, the uh, refusal to, uh, well, attacking Ukraine only with 200,000 troops. That's, that's the first one. It's like um, far, far too little. Uh, uh, obviously, if, if you're going to do that, then the main assumption would have been that uh, uh, you collapse morale immediately with uh, with shock and all, like uh, like with Iraq. But uh, when that didn't pan out, uh, the correct thing would have been to uh, start uh, mobilizing or just using conscripts. Uh, to uh, to secure the other areas, uh, but that was wasn't done, and in fact, mobilization uh, only began in September, like literally half a half a year after the beginning of the war, uh, when it uh, became clear that uh, some parts of the front were like under threat of just crumbling. Uh, and uh, obviously, the Ukrainians uh, uh, had early successes, and uh, the uh, successes uh, encouraged them. And uh, the uh, well, I mean, they were basically underestimated, uh, uh, like uh, combat efficiency and so forth. And uh, the third reason is that uh, Russia, uh, like apart from the like the cardinal mistakes of manpower. Uh, there was also in the first few days, at least, even a um, uh, sort of hesitation to conduct strikes at uh, uh, at uh, clusters of Ukrainian troops, such as barracks. Uh, that again is a very strange way to to wage a, a war. And uh, obviously, the uh, for infrastructure attacks to begin, uh, like uh, on 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 electricity on. Uh, uh, the radio stations, TV stations, telecommunications. Uh, I mean that 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 again is uh, is something like uh, that, that's only only really began several months ago, uh, not at the beginning, uh, not for for several months afterwards on a on a serious scale at least. Uh, so uh, uh, basically, uh, if if you want to uh, to um, narrow it down to uh, to a, a few main reasons. Uh, that's the uh, first, the the failure of the shock and awe strategy, on which it seems that the Kremlins were severely banking upon. Uh, second, the uh, uh, refusal, the prolonged refusal to uh, uh, involve uh, much more manpower. Uh, and uh, the third reason is that uh, uh, waging is is waging war with uh, with the gloves off for for basically half a year. And uh, in sum, I think that this, uh, there's a good chance that this has made uh, the war essentially unwinnable by now. Unwinnable for Russia, you mean? Yeah. 
So why do you think the Kremlin chose initially to fight with gloves on to a certain extent and only later start attacking infrastructure and start attacking barracks and other targets like those? Uh, I think there's uh, there's two reasons. Uh, first, uh, there were some uh, probably initially some considerations about not alienating uh, Ukrainians for too long, even though that train had long left the station. You can't exactly bank on much goodwill if you uh, in- invade someone. Uh, best hope is to just get it over with quickly. And uh, the second reason is that uh, um, there seems to be uh, like a terminal problem with uh, with the man with the war's management and with the. Uh, uh, with the entire system, uh, it's is that uh, the action times are just uh, very slow, or or like the OODA loop in, in military terminology is uh, is uh, very uh, very bloated. Sorry, could you explain uh, what that so, means? Uh, so uh, yeah, basically you uh, um, you wait, uh, you don't do anything, and then uh, something forces your hand, and you you're forced to uh, to react on it. So the uh, um, the uh, war uh, on became progressively much uh, much worse for Russia because the Ukrainians kept improving. They uh, uh, started getting uh, uh, like uh, in, in intensive ISR support from uh, from from the US primarily, uh, like making the artillery much more accurate and essentially for the most part annulling uh, uh, Russia's vast uh, superiority in shells. Uh, so things like that, and uh, it um, basically Russia's just was just very very slow to react to the um, uh, the shift against it in the uh, in terms of the correlation of forces. Uh, so initially, uh, when Russia attacked, uh, the actual Russian armies involved they outnumbered the Ukrainians even in manpower, despite the the refusal to. Uh, like really a load on Russia's manpower uh, advantages, and obviously Russia had a lot more military equipment. Uh, but uh, since uh, since uh, and uh, and the more technologically advanced military equipment as well, obviously. Uh, but since then, uh, the uh, Ukrainians have narrowed the gap or closed it entirely on basically all those factors. Uh, so they've been steadily conducting waves of mobilization throughout, uh, like from the very start, whereas Russia only started doing that uh, as a sort of knee-jerk reaction in September. Uh, the um, uh, the uh, military capital stock uh, was being uh, uh, continuously replaced by uh, by Western imports. First, the uh, like the Soviet surplus in uh, in uh, the former uh, um, like Warsaw Pact countries, and now increasingly for like this year, it appears that it's it's actually going to be uh, like um, like real the uh, like the uh, indigenous Western stuff. Like first armor in, in armored infantry vehicles, and then uh, uh, probably progressing onto tanks later in the year, I would guess, uh, leopards. And uh, the uh, third thing is the closure of the uh, technological gap, and in many respects, it's sort of like Ukraine surpassing it, uh, simply because it uh, sort of um, uh, well uh, outsourced that part of the war to uh, to US or NATO, NATO in general. And it's just basically providing the manpower, and uh, the the planes are well for the most part uh, American essentially, because you you even had uh, that article in the Washington Post a few days ago, uh, where they were talking about um, uh, about uh, uh, like like how the Kharkov offensive why it was successful. Uh, they, it was scouted out ahead, and uh, uh, and the Americans calculated that Ukraine would probably succeed, but stopped them from 
from uh, attacking Zaporozhye uh, back in September, October, uh, simply because their calculations showed that uh, a Zaporozhye offensive would not be successful. Uh, so, and, and I mean, this kind of thing is a huge Ukrainian advantage simply because, I mean, again, if you look at World War Two, uh, the, uh, uh, after the, like, the initial success of some Soviet offensives, like, in the, after Stalingrad, they eventually immediately launched, uh, like, some of the five offensives, which were just a meat grinder and totally unsuccessful, and even some, like, uh, uh, offensives which ended up in encirclements. Uh, so, uh, but uh, if you have uh, like uh, like this uh, elite analytical level ability that's uh, that's just given to you, you are eventually you are basically making a lot fewer mistakes, and that's a plays a huge advantage. Uh, obviously, you see concentrations of any addition troops as well, thanks again to uh, ISR advantage that that Ukraine enjoys again uh, loading on the American uh, sort of uh, brains aspect. And uh, like to to achieve offensive successes, you generally need to uh, get uh, an advantage in concentration of mass. Right? That's like basically a, a core military principle. And doing that sort of thing right now is just extremely hard for Russia, simply because, uh, well, I mean, if you have uh, uh, like a ton of optical uh, recon satellites uh, observing the front and uh, like being poured over by analysts who just uh, feed the data. Uh, to the Ukrainian Genstab, uh, then uh, that just becomes a lot more more difficult and uh, possibly unreal, uh, unrealistic in general. Interesting. So yeah, I want to talk more about the the weaknesses facing the Russian side and also again facing the Ukrainian side. But during the early weeks of the war, when the when there was significant fighting around the city of Kiev, Kiev. What weapons made the difference for the Ukrainians? Was it the shoulder-mounted anti-tank uh, missile launchers supplied by US and UK, or was it just the conventional Soviet arsenal they already had? I mean, I I'm not sort of like too familiar with these precise details of uh, of uh, what what enabled uh, of what precisely enabled what. Uh, it seems that the javelins were uh, like effective to some considerable respect, uh, this, um, this like extent, unlike uh, and uh, laws, for instance. Mm. Uh, but uh, again, I think uh, the the core problem really was that Russia used too too too, too little manpower. Uh, so it attacked with uh, uh, thirty thousand troops or so on the Kiev axis, and again that was only ever going to work in the respect if uh, the there was sort of like a morale-driven collapse, uh, which failed to which uh, like vainly failed to materialize. I mean thirty thousand troops is basically one point five German World War Two either divisions. I mean imagine taking a like a metropolis of of almost five million people with one and a half. Uh, uh, like divisions, so it's 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 pretty 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 bizarre. So I think the manpower component really is the uh, uh, the primary explanation. Uh, the, like we now know that the uh, initial uh, uh, the the initial invasion wave consisted of uh, something like one hundred ninety thousand troops in total, uh, and uh, the uh, so we they they were. I mean, I mean, they enjoyed superiority on on sectors of the front, and they were heavily armored and so forth. Uh, so they so they broke too initially, uh, but there was nobody to secure the rear uh, because again, you didn't have manpower, and you needed uh, you needed manpower to secure the supply lines, 
uh, to make sure that uh, to like uh, well, I mean, the, the Russians simply passed uh, passed to uh, Chernigov uh, with a like place like Chernigov, Sunni without capturing them, and then Ukrainian uh, uh, like armed formations from those cities just uh, were then uh, at free at freedom to harass uh, the Russian rear and eventually make the strike group reigned against Kiev, which was very small. Uh, besides, uh, impractical, impractical for it to achieve anything, anything further. Uh, so yeah, I mean, my, I, in my opinion, the primary explanation is just mainly lack of uh, manpower. But given that you and all the other analysts, including the ones and Metaculus that you mentioned, were aware of roughly how much manpower Russia had um, deployed on the border with Ukraine. You presumably were predicting there would be that morale-induced collapse on the Ukrainian side. I mean, I assume that the Kremlins were, were like knew to some extent what they were doing. That the intelligence services had had done their work uh, instead of uh, uh, what now seems to have just been uh, like engaging in in wishful thinking, or perhaps simply even uh, uh, lying to uh, uh, to to the Kremlins. Um, because they wanted they wanted the war, uh, but knew that if they uh, uh, if they were going to be more realistic, uh, then uh, uh, then the war wouldn't happen in the first place. So I assume that the very fact that the war was uh, was looking like it's going to happen and with a very high likelihood uh, that uh, they had stuck deals, like bribed the correct uh, elites. That I mean, there was some some like um well incidental pieces of evidence uh, in the days even before the war that uh, that some of that might have uh, might have happened and uh, even uh, perhaps in individual cases like Yevson that actually might have happened because uh, the, there was like no resistance pretty much when uh, when Russia entered Kherson and uh, that involved crossing the Dnieper, establishing a beachhead west of the Dnieper. So that was sort of like a pretty significant strategic coup in that respect. Um, like I was uh, sort of like expecting that if there was going to be a... Uh, uh, like a like a serious uh, like um, well um, campaign, and then probably the focal point of it would probably be around some place like Dnipropetrovsk. I mean that would have been my guess. Uh, not 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 certainly won't have guessed that um, uh, we'd still be fighting over uh, dust belts in in the Donbass uh, eleven months in. So and uh, yeah and uh, so uh, yeah the the secondary assumption obviously was that uh, once it became clear that the initial sort of shock and awe morale collapsed even um, sort of victory uh, was not going to happen and that was already pretty clear I believe in uh, one two weeks maximum three weeks uh, then the correct the correct response by by then would have been to bring in the conscripts or to start mobilization. Like not not in, in September but in April, uh, and uh, like if they had done that, then it would be in a much better situation right now. Uh, but again, the uh, the mobilization as it happened was very haphazard. So it's not as if they even uh, uh, sort of were planning for the mobilization over the summer and increasing uh, industrial military industrial production to equip the the new mobics that were going to come online. Uh, the, it increasingly seems that it, they were genuinely caught by surprise as, as late as September and just had to uh, uh, to start panic mobilizing as a uh, sort of like a uh, 
um, like a forced measure. Yeah, so many uh, Western reports have indicated that, uh, that Russia failed to uh, do the, do the, acquire the appropriate intelligence before it launched the invasion, as, as you mentioned. Some people on the Russian side dismiss those reports as kind of pro-Western propaganda, but you think they're likely to be correct? I think they're glue huffers. Oh, excuse me? I think they're glue huffers. You mean they the people on the pro-Russian side that dismiss these reports? Uh, well, I mean those people who claim that, uh, like, do this divisionism. I mean, they're either uh, just like um, uh, inventing stuff because there's a constituency that sort of wants to hear, uh, like, uh, like very white-pilled uh, from Russia's perspective stories, like uh, much of Anglo Z Twitter, in my opinion. Or they're just very divorced from from reality. I mean, that's just my take on it. Right. So yeah, at the moment, on in terms of the Twitter debate, you're one of the people on the pro-Russian side who's least bullish about Russia. Many of the other people who tweet about this in English on on your side are much more optimistic than you. But but you think that you think they're they're sniffing glue. Uh, well, I mean that's uh, metaphorically. Of course, <laughs> you think they're you think they're grossly mistaken. Uh, yes, I mean Scott. That, uh, I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I never even cited these people. I don't, I don't really read them or anything, so I don't know precisely what what they're saying. Uh, but uh, what what I'm basically seeing is that uh, is that of a of a leadership that uh, continues to react very late to. Uh, uh, to like new crisis and isn't pre- proactive like the last time they were like genuinely proactive was uh, was literally in February. Uh, so I don't uh, I'm I'm very skeptical about the uh, prospects of actually accomplishing anything and uh, the, in my opinion there's now the uh, uh, the distinct risk of truly catastrophic outcomes like so it's not it's not that difficult to imagine for instance a scenario in which they spend the next uh, the next few months simply. Um, well, knocking teeth against Bakhmut and Solidar and, uh, you know, those uh, sort of like massive centers of industry, the uh, gates to Europe, uh, like in, in the Donbass. And, uh, um, the, uh, and then just basically attrition away the, uh, the manpower they mobilized and, uh, in that, and, uh, trained, although not, not very, not very well, uh, over, over the winter. And uh, then come, and then they I imagine that they don't actually do another wave of mobilization, and that they don't increase uh, like military industrial production, and then the Ukrainians get uh, their their new armor uh, from from the West, and then just uh, launch a successful armored uh, armored attack against uh, uh, against the uh, Crimean corridor, uh, against Napolovia, and cut off Crimea from uh, uh, from Donbass, and that will just make Russia's position like extremely bad from a military perspective. I mean, I don't actually exclude this, this scenario anymore. So Metaculus uh, says that something like, I think last time I checked, something like an 18% chance that uh, uh, that Sevastopol uh, is going to be in Crimean hands by the end of this year, and something like a 50% chance, if I recall correctly, that uh, Militopol would be uh, in Ukrainian hands. Uh, Militopol is the, sort of like the key to controlling the uh, the Crimean corridor uh, between Donbass and Crimea. So, so did you say 18%? 18%. 18%. Uh, 
18% that's Sevastopol, uh, which is the main city yeah. in Crimea, uh, in southern Crimea, furthermore, and 50% uh, uh, for the uh, Melitopol. Oh, 50% the, uh, for Melitopol. Which is uh, the Zaporovia uh, city, which is sort of like the key city uh, between Donbass and Crimea. So I'm in this strange position of playing devil's advocate for the for the pro-Russian side, which is which is bullish on Russia. Um, but one argument I've seen on Twitter, and I think that's also been made by um, Colonel Douglas McGregor, who's uh, who's an American retired American general that that is optimistic about Russia's prospects in this war, is that. Russia's not fighting in order to win territory at this point. They're fighting in order to, you know, in quotation marks, demilitarize Ukraine. They're trying to destroy as many of the Ukrainian forces as they can. And so they don't particularly care whether they lose territory here and there, so long as they win with a very favorable uh, loss ratio. What do you make of that argument? Uh, firstly, I think that the attrition strategy was viable when last day shows were something like three to one, and I do believe that there was something like three to one at the beginning of the war. Do you mean three uh, because, losses uh, on the Ukrainian side for every one on the Russian side? Uh, yes, yeah. at the beginning. Uh, yeah, uh, just just for emphasis. Uh, so again, uh, Russian manpower is something like forty million peop- men of military age, and for Ukraine, it's something like nine million. So Russia has a more than fourfold advantage. So yes, I mean, with uh, lost issues like that, that's basically a tenfold advantage in per capita terms. And so you can win. Theoretically, you can win by attrition, even though it's going to be extremely bloody and uh, unethical and uh, and so forth. And uh, I, I was sort of like guessing that perhaps that was the strategy that they had adopted uh, in early summer, because, uh, well, um, around April, May, I even thought about it. Although, I, again, I sort of uh, thought that it was a very dubious strategy, uh, simply because uh, it's uh, it, it means the war going on for, for years, basically, because still uh, 9 million is, uh, like, you, you still need, like, uh, uh, at least a year or two just for uh, for Ukraine to... to um, Exhaust volunteers. Uh, uh, that's and uh, basically assume that from then on it won't start conscripting people much more coercively. Uh, so uh, that will, and, and it also excluded the uh, uh, the idea that the Ukrainian forces would keep on improving. Uh, because of uh, NATO, of uh, NATO training, which is happening, because of uh, weapon supplies, which again uh, uh, continue to come, and and uh, um, the the thing about destroying the the Ukrainian military, I mean, we have to specify what exactly you're going to be destroying, because uh, there's uh, the the NATO supplies are limitless. Uh, the Ukrainians are going to keep on getting uh, shells and uh, munitions and uh, and uh, armor and uh, whatever else they need uh, for for indefinitely. Because uh, again, the West is provisioning something like uh, seventy to hundred billion dollars worth of, of of this stuff per year. That's uh, that's just basically a downing gather in terms of the percentage of the combined GDP of the EU, the UK, and the US. That 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 this, this describes. So uh, this and the, yeah, by by the way, that's equivalent to the Russian budget, which is uh, like five uh, percent of GDP that uh, she is uh, bizarrely spending on on uh, this supposedly existential war against uh, gay satanic Nazism. Uh, so uh, it's um, uh, you're not going to be uh, to win by destroying like tanks and 
IFEs and whatever. Uh, so the only way to, to win by attrition is to destroy uh, manpower. Uh, but again, that's going to be taking uh, years, even in the best case, uh, that, that like favorable loss ratios are indefinitely preserved. And I think that's basically been invalidated anyway. Uh, so um, I, I think that they're more like one to one now, uh, probably. So you disagree uh, so, strongly with the uh, likes of so, Douglas McGregor. You, you disagree strongly with the likes of Douglas McGregor. I think he claims that their loss ratios at the moment are something like one Russian loss for every ten Ukrainian losses. You think that's absurd? Uh, that's that's uh, that's like blue addiction. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I mean, look, uh, Russia is uh, like to actually get these sorts of favorable losses. You. Uh, what what is Russia doing right now? It's it's making frontal assaults against uh, against like these uh, bombed out husks in Bakhmut and, and whatever else, uh, with like like uh, uh, against entrenched defenders who uh, who can uh, fire mortars, uh, who have a, a lot of drones. They they can detect Russian tomb concentrations, fire down mortars, shells, uh, or grenades from drones on them. And uh, it's uh, basically uh, it, it, the, the equivalent. What you have here is not like uh, like like to get favorable uh, loss ratios uh, when you are attacking. You actually need to accompany it with encirclement. Uh, so that you are you really encircle something, you stop the inflow of munitions to that pocket, and then you just clean it up because at some point they run out of munitions, and uh, uh, well, and uh, all you're left with really is just meat. Uh, that's that's how like the Germans achieved uh, uh, high, very favorable loss ratios uh, during like the early early offensives in World War Two. Well, what, what's happening now is like these frontal assaults uh, against the foe again against which Russia does not actually have any technological advantage, and it's increasingly actually losing even its uh, sort of like uh, advantage in shells. So there was. Uh, uh, like Russia started off with the assumption that the Soviet stocks of shells were, were essentially infinite and uh, apparently used up a uh, very large percentage of them in the summer, uh, like uh, taking places like Syria-Donetsk, Lysychansk, and so forth. And now they, they apparently have to start rationing the shells. Again, that's according to Stelkov and some other people. Uh, simply because, uh, well, um, the sort of the Soviet stocks are running out and people on Twitter, like including that Twitter, were were like um, um, engaging in Schadenfreude Freud over over where Ukraine was going to get its shells from uh, because U.S. stocks are limited. Uh, but in the event, it emerged that Russia stocks were also uh, limited, and uh, that uh, the people, the magical people in the Kremlin, hadn't thought of uh, of uh, massively increasing shells production like months ago, as uh, so should have been done. Uh, so this is like part of a complex of various decisions that just suggest that the Kremlin is either not very serious about the war, or just waging it extremely incompetently. And uh, this is a big, a big uh, factor of uh, which sort of like explains my pessimism, which which has been pretty sharp since since October. Or so, uh, or um, um, and so and uh, on these conditions, how you expect uh, uh, like uh, lost ratios to be very sharply in Russia's favor? Well, I mean, I just don't uh, don't understand where people people are coming from. So the Ukrainian defenders in Bakhmut they're not surrounded, they're not encircled, they're uh, defending for the most part. It's it's just like a red doom. 
So uh, both France and Germany lost 400,000 people in the, in the Battle of Verdun. Uh, so about one to one, well, slightly done advantage to Germany actually, but not a big one. Uh, uh, my guess is that, uh, the current battles and then Bass would be seeming, seeing, uh, analogous issues. Yeah, you make a lot of good points and I'm certainly not a, a, a military expert, so I'm just playing devil's advocate. One point, those on the other side, i.e. the, the side that's bullish on Russia make, is that you know Russia's firing five or ten times as many artillery shells for every one the Ukrainians are firing. That might lead to favorable loss ratios, might it not? Absolutely, yes. And I was making the same argument in the summer. Uh, then the ratio was indeed around 10 to 1. Uh, but as I noted, uh, the, uh, um, they actually managed to substantially exhaust the Soviet stocks they had, and they, didn't, uh, they don't seem to have... A, in significantly increased production of shells since since like they didn't start doing it months ago as they should have done so now there's no longer a big russian advantage that's the first thing the second thing is that uh, uh the ukrainians enjoy uh much shorter uda loops uh and they enjoy uh satellite support so like some of the russian artillery uh like the krasnopol it was uh, sort of uh, designed to work with uh, uh with uh, uh gp with with glonass which is the russian version of gps uh but glonass wasn't online at that time yet so it was only there to work with gps for the time being and hadn't been upgraded so obviously gps uh like doesn't have access to the military uh sort of like uh access to to uh, gps capabilities so for, for like an either die in the civilian one or i uh, need to uh to change it over to the uh bonus one and again that uh, that came with a delay so you have these various problems i mean in short basically the artillery is uh uh, is uh, less accurate and less responsive than the ukrainian uh, artillery due to like various targeting targeting issues and networking and so on i mean the ukrainians have developed a kind of uh like uber system uber like system for for artillery command uh, artillery commanders where they get they get satellite data and then they communicate amongst themselves uh in digital communications channels by the way encrypted uh so that's what uh, then can be spied upon and uh, prioritize the targets and then just just like destroy them in a sort of like a dis- decentralized way. And it's, uh, it seems to be a much more uh, flexible and uh, a system that punches above its weight, uh, above well above the like the level you would otherwise simply expect from a shell-to-shell uh, comparison, which still favors Russia, but by more like, probably by, by more like, like three to one instead of 10 to one, uh, as it was, was the case back in the summer. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and I did read that recently myself as well. So on the on the crucial issue of artillery shells, because as many people have noted, this war has been fought overwhelmingly with artillery by both sides. Is it true, in your opinion, that Russia has been buying shells from North Korea? In I allow it to. Uh, so uh, I mean, for the, the one thing I don't really think that Ukraine, uh, why Ukraine will realistically run out of shells or munitions in general is because uh, it's not just a matter of western manufacturing they can just go to uh, like all various places in the world including even even like countries that are 
friendly to Russia uh, and just buy the shells from them. So, for instance, uh, they recently got a big party of them from Pakistan. And I'm assuming that Russia is going to be doing similar stuff, although the uh, amount of countries from which it could do such things uh, is much more limited. So, yeah, probably I assume that North Korea would be one of them. Um, I mean, if China could start uh, supplying it with shells, uh, then that would basically resolve a huge amount of problems. And in fact, if uh, if China was actually going to supply, ever going to supply uh, Russia uh, at the sort of like level of modest level of its GDP that say NATO supplies Ukraine with, then yeah, the war would would actually become winnable for Russia again. Simply because China has a GDP of of what I think it's close to 30 trillion now. Uh, and, um, uh, I mean, so, and the combined NATO GDP is something like 50 trillion. So again, you're talking about similar magnitudes. So, uh, one of the, one of the major points I've sort of been making and, uh, and sort of drilling, uh, from for a long time now is that, uh, uh, Russia no longer enjoys a spending, uh, uh, superiority over, over Ukraine. Historically, uh, the, country or coalition in a war that has spent more on uh, on military production and uh, uh, the military uh, is is the country or coalition that ended up winning the war well, like uh, Krugman, uh, no, not Krugman, Kennedy uh, has a good book on that, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, that's uh, like one of my, I think one of the first geopolitics books I ever read, uh, stuck with me, the lessons there. Uh, but uh, but yeah, um, uh, in the beginning, uh, obviously, she enjoy, did enjoy her superiority in this, but uh, now that uh, the West is supplying Ukraine with something like $700 billion per year, plus Ukraine uh, is spending 20 25% of its own, uh, albeit reduced GDP on the military, but still that's 160 billion, a quarter of that is something like 40 billion, 40 billion plus, plus 70 or 90 billion, that's something like 120 billion, right? Uh, and uh, Russia, Russia's GDP is, uh, uh, in nominal terms, is uh, 2 trillion. Uh, and 5% of 2 trillion is 100 billion, which is what it's, what, what it's spending on GDP. So again, these are comparable numbers. So to actually get a material preponderance that, that translates into battlefield success, either Russia must increase the spending of GDP on the military from the current, uh, uh bizarre, absurd 5% of GDP. I mean, just, just for comparison, the US was spending something like, uh, like uh, eight or nine percent of GDP during the Vietnam War, so like the U.S. was literally spending more on a like a, like a communist containment type of optional war with versus Russia, which is sort of like like a much more existential war. But uh, anyway, sorry, that's an aside. If if it could increase it from five percent of GDP to something like ten percent or fifteen percent of GDP, then yeah, it would enjoy a big superiority over over the uh, uh, over Ukraine again. And if China could uh, like start to provision Russia at the day that NATO is provisioning Ukraine, say, or that even say Iran is provisioning Russia. Uh, then, uh, then yeah, the balance of uh, of material power would shift to to Russia again. But none of those things are happening. Uh, the Kremlins are not revving up production to the extent that uh, I can detect. So just a couple of anecdotes. Uh, there was a Twitter account called Zivat Ball 
requests and contacts with uh, with um, like headhunter.lu, which is a hiring agency. As uh, apparently they say that um, uh, there's been no increase in hiring for defense related uh, defense industry related occupations since uh, since February. And uh, you even like recently, a few days ago, you even had some uh, some auto repair factory, which could, in principle, repair 500 tanks per year, just being closed down. Uh, so what, what I'm getting at uh, is there's no signs of major military industrial mobilization in Russia. And uh, how you can expect to start winning uh, with, with a sort of attitude, I don't know. You either do a war economy or you get the equivalent uh, uh, like um, a transfer from, uh, from abroad. And the only realistic candidate that can that can do that is China, if if, if it decides to. But apparently, China decided that it's not interested, uh, which which okay is. Uh, I, mean, I mean, they're not obligated to do that. So, but but uh, Russia does presumably have an interest in winning in winning this war. So the failure to do this is very uh, is is very weird. Uh, and. Um, yeah, there's a couple of other things I've, I've mentioned from time to time. Uh, I thought that uh, the uh, uh, bombing campaign to destroy Ukrainian infrastructure uh, was was, uh, was an important element of it. And they did start doing it, uh, but again, not in the quantities that are really needed to shut down the electricity system, uh, especially since for reasons that I cannot fathom, they're not actually hitting hard to repair turbines, generators uh, within power plants. Uh, they're mostly just taking um, transformer stations, which can be uh, like quickly repaired or there's like limitless supplies of them from abroad anyway. And uh, even... Uh, very basic issues with uh, with with like military organization have not been solved. Like for instance, a uh, uh, army wide system of encrypted digital communications. Like literally, not not it, it, it's a scandal that uh, such a system didn't exist at the beginning of the war. But it's just unfathomable, unfathomable that this system hasn't be, uh, that any such system hasn't become universalized across the Russian military. Uh, now that we're in January of 2023, like, you know, like approaching 11 months into the war. Uh, so uh, all, all this combined just uh, creates this impression that they're not facing the war seriously. And uh, so I don't uh, like as, as long as it continues this way. And as they say, the best predictor of future performance is past performance. I don't see this uh, changing, delicious uh, prospects changing for the better in a cardinal way. So before we go on to talk about the way different world powers have responded to the war, just wanted to get your take on on casualties that both sides have suffered. What are your latest estimates in terms of KIA? I think it's 40,000 for Russia and 80,000 for Ukraine. That's, that's dead soldiers. Yes. And how do you come to those numbers? Uh, there's the Media Zona project uh, that tallies uh, uh, that tallies Russian dead from social media. Uh, so assuming that like 40 to 50 percent of them uh, are accounted for, that's something like 25,000 dead by now uh, from uh, from the Russian army. Uh, plus uh, the uh, uh, the DNR and the LNR have had much much bigger casualties per capita than Russia at large. So that's another. Five thousand, seven thousand, five hundred. 
maybe 10,000 plus. uh, well, I mean, Wagner would be included, the Wagner casualties, and they've been taking a lot of casualties. On the other hand, uh, if you think about it, uh, um, uh, if uh, probably the most sort of like expendable uh, troops amongst them are the convicts uh, whom uh, Prigozhin was recruiting, uh, and uh, probably not many people to weep or remember them. Uh, so uh, I'm assuming that the percentage of them that have been accounted for in the media on the project would be lower. So yeah, just uh, just uh, loosely basing this of uh, uh, of of this and things like uh, like even even like individual places like Saratov where uh, like military casualties, uh, known dead here are approaching uh, like seventy percent of the level incurred uh, in the uh, Afghan war and the Chechen wars, uh, like. Like there's other methods such as this one. Uh, like all of them seem to suggest a level of thirty-five to forty thousand. And what about the opinion, Ukrainian which figure? Which is which is uh, two and a half times lower than the, in my opinion, utterly divorced from reality Ukrainian estimates of uh, of a hundred thousand or probably one hundred twenty thousand right now. Um, uh, but uh, but yeah, uh, th- th- there's some incidental indications that, uh, as, as I said, I think I think that the uh, the issue at the beginning was three to one in Russia's favor, and since then they've been trending down, uh, especially in my opinion since uh, since late summer, uh, um, and uh, now we, now now I think it's it's more like one to one. So how do you sorry how do you get to eighty thousand on the Ukrainian side? Uh, well, uh, the problem is it's much, uh, much more difficult to calculate the Ukrainian losses uh, because there's a huge, uh, uh, well, uh, for various uh, reasons, uh, people um, are less interested in counting Ukrainian casualties because this is demoralizing, and so you, uh, if you're a Ukraine uh, sort of partisan, uh, uh, which most people are, uh, like in the uh, in the West, uh, you're not going to be expending a lot of effort on uh, on counting uh, dead Mikolas. Uh, but so so the uncertainty range is a lot higher. But just based based on the assumption that uh, the loss ratios were three to one, but have declined since. Uh, uh, also, there's another project called War Tears, uh, which uh, uh, does something like uh, like the uh, the Media Zona project for uh, does for Russia. Although it's a, the methodology is a bit different, uh, but uh, they suggest it's a size of 120,000. Uh, uh, but that sort of uh, uh, is reliant on the number of people who look up uh, their, uh, their uh, database and achieve a positive hit uh, from Ukraine. And that strikes me as a rather uh, dubious uh, methodology because mm. uh, uh, because uh, people who have reason to suspect that their friend or relative or whatever died uh, in the war, they would be more likely to do such searches in the first place. And I'm not sure they actually adjust for that. Uh, but uh, so I mean I can't really go go into detail and have my notes on this in front of me right now. But uh, my sort of general guess at this point in time, uh, guesstimate, is that Russia 40k, uh, Ukraine 80k, uh, but that it's now progressing at uh, at a constant rate for both sides. Interesting. Um, moving on, so why do you think China hasn't provided Russia, as far as we know, with a large amount of military aid? 
I mean, the most common explanation is that uh, China doesn't want to uh, uh, to spoil relationships with the U.S. and uh, invite further sanctions. I think this is a rather dubious position because, uh, well, uh, the U.S. is kind of um, uh, is kind of intent on on constraining and technologically restricting China either which way. Uh, so I don't really see much reason to be governed by by that. Uh, I, I mean, uh, the, the the second the the the, the, the primary reason I think that supplying uh, uh, Russia is in China's interests, and I mean, um, this is just talking objectively, not not like for many like paths and loyalties, but just trying try to look at it objectively. Uh, is that uh, if uh, if Russia loses loses does end up losing the war if if it's if, if it's like not not like like a, a frozen conflict uh, uh, that that goes on for years like Philippe Lemoine does but say uh, Ukraine does achieve the uh, uh, this you know this priority that enables it to dive down to Zaporozhye and then to uh, and then take Crimea and uh, like I don't think the Putin regime will survive a, a a major defeat in Ukraine and I mean the loss of Crimea like one step forwards two steps back I mean I I do not believe that the Putin regime will survive that I said that like even before the war started uh, I mean obviously I thought that Russia, that such an outcome would be purely theoretical at that point, but it's no longer theoretical. Uh, but but that initial assessment still stands. I do not I do not believe that the Putin regime can credibly survive such an outcome. Uh, then in that case, uh, which, what, what allies does China still have? I mean, it's uh, supposedly interested in contesting uh, uh, global hegemony uh, with the US. It certainly has shown sign that it's uh, uh, interested in uh, uh, the uniting uh, or annexing Taiwan, like uh, however you you look at that issue. Uh, how is it going to do that uh, if it, if it's sort of like its primary ally is, is just North Korea, maybe Pakistan, but that, even that's not like a, like a, uh, like a, um, like a sure thing. Uh, how, how it's supposed to sort of like uh, do this uh, in a situation in which Russia is at best neutral or at worst uh, uh, actually joins the Western line structure. Um, like complete with the uh, U.S. Uh, like air bases in in the in the Russian Far East and uh, uh, and uh, uh, cutting off resource exports when when uh, China decides to get risky with Taiwan. So I'm not really sure how 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 uh, what was the plan at that point. Uh, the one sort of like logical explanation I could find is that uh, either China posits that a Russian loss in in uh, Crimea will not actually result in Putin's loss of power, and it will just like sort of like become a, a military junta-like country like like uh, Myanmar, which is uh, very much dependent on on China. So that might be viewed as as an actually actually a win for. China, although personally I believe that's a low probability outcome, uh, or the uh, alternative explanation is that the uh, uh, the Chinese regime isn't actually that rational or competent or clear-sighted about uh, about things, and uh, that possibility can't really be excluded considering the uh, the record on zero COVID and uh, various other things that. Uh, uh, that uh, mistakes that that CFPs to have made. Mm, interesting. And so what do you think the U.S. and by extension its Western allies want to achieve by supplying military aid to Ukraine? 
in my opinion, uh, the sort of like the optimal outcome for the U.S. Uh, would be one in which uh, the ship is uh, constrained, uh, like bleeds out its military potential and uh, uh, essentially uh, and saps uh, its economic vitality. Because, yeah, I mean, the uh, sanctions were overdated. Uh, the effects were overdated at the start because the ship does have a like a, a substantial domestic economy. Uh, that that does produce uh, produce stuff and it can continue trade with uh, with China and other other countries. So in the short term, it's not it's not a huge deal. I mean, it's a significant deal, but it's not a huge deal. But over time, the uh, technological sanctions are going to start having an effect in terms of uh, uh, in terms of manufacturing uh, competitiveness and, and stuff like that. Uh, so uh, my opinion is is just that uh, that uh, Russia is a geopolitical competitor of of the U.S. and in Ukraine it sees itself a uh, an extremely cheap way of uh, of undermining it and uh, perhaps eventually even uh, well overthrowing it and vassalizing it uh, perhaps although that's that's like a distant distant prospect. And uh, essentially, it's uh, it's uh, y- you can't deny that it's succeeding at at at, uh, at the current pace because, uh, uh, as I said in my last major Twitter that uh, it increasingly resembles Russia's position right now increasingly resembles uh, one of Zugzwang, uh, uh, which is like a a um, uh, a thing in chess where no matter what move you make next, uh, the situation for you becomes worse. Right. What about John Mearsheimer's argument that by pursuing the policy that is that is pursued in Ukraine since you know 2014 or earlier, the U.S. has actually been pushing Russia into the arms of China, whereas it could have potentially had Russia as an ally in an anti-China coalition. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, that's a valid point. Uh, the uh, I mean, in the 1990s. Uh, Russia was a very Americanophile country, according to opinion polls, but then various, uh, various issues. So, uh, the, uh, uh, the Serbia bombing, the Iraq war, the, uh, uh, the, uh, Georgian war, the, uh, uh, like all of these things, Crimea most especially, not, not to speak of recent developments, they've sort of, uh, aggressively degraded, uh, American Russian relationships are now, uh, now, obviously, that's sort of like uh, very hard to, to to remember that that period when when indeed the, the Russians were uh, very Russophile, very Americanophile, according to opinion polls, uh, back in the 1990s. So that was a squandered opportunity uh, in that sense, I suppose. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose you could sort of like uh, um, do various fancy explanations for that, like that quip about NATO being designed to keep the. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans down. Uh, mm. But uh, on the other hand, it seems to have had more to do with just uh, U.S. domestic politics. So especially like the accession of Poland to NATO, and uh, that was uh, basically Clinton either domestic politics, uh, the, sort of like the more banal uh, but but likely explanation for that. And what about? But uh, what's 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 done is done, and uh, uh, the uh, either Russia is going to uh, to win the war, or um, uh, uh, or it's uh, uh, it's going there's going to be like a stalemate, and probably eventually some kind of peace deal, which which I still think is the likeliest the likeliest outcome uh, once both sides get tired of uh, of fighting. 
uh, or uh, there's maybe like a 20% chance, in my opinion, that uh, there's going to be a big defeat, which I'm, and if, if that happens, I'm uh, sort of 80 to 90% sure that uh, that uh, Putin would not like survive for more than two or three years after that in power. Interesting. Um, just before I yeah ask you to kind of sum up again, what what do you think the role of Europe has been in all of this? Is Europe largely passive um, compared to the US or has it played an important role? I mean, I think it's played a critical role, right? Because, uh, I mean, if anything, uh, the uh, Kremlins have had a persistent uh, sort of... Uh, uh, this impression that uh, Europe was somehow less uh, anti-Russian than America, more accommodative or whatever, uh, whereas this is just objectively not true. In, in, in fact, some of the sanctions were more targeted against, uh, were like like more severely targeted against Russia than, uh, than, than in the U.S., so like the financial sanctions that the EU ended up taking against it were were more more severe, whereas some some like American banks were actually buying up, uh, like uh, like Russian company shares in the aftermath, and uh, IT was banned from Twitter in the in in the European in the EU, but not not in the US. So I mean, like even even down to like these like weirdly minor things, uh, it seems that the Europeans are, if anything, more hostile to uh, to the shoulder, or just obviously for capability. The U.S. is a much richer country, and uh, it it has like tons of military hardware. So in any confrontation, it obviously ends up providing the great bulk of the support and uh, the military aid anyway. Uh, but uh, it. it it doesn't seem obvious to me that the um, sort of like the uh, U.S. is uh, is uh, um, sort of uh, absolutely bent on uh, driving Russia out of Ukraine. I mean, it, it needs to sort of uh, support Zelensky's rhetoric, and there's no benefits to to uh, politically for for not endorsing Ukrainian uh, sort of maximalism for for U.S. politicians. But do they are they like really invested into it? Uh, well, probably not. Probably they're um, like ideal uh, sort of uh, situation is that uh, she is driven back to the uh, uh, the uh, immediate pre-war borders and uh, that there's some settlement from there. Okay, so returning to the to the war itself and the likely outcome, what what chance do you assign the uh, outcome where? due to a, say, collapse of the Ukrainian economy or due to excessive losses in the armed forces, the Ukrainian military simply collapses? Do you assign that a very low probability? Uh, probably something like 10%, mm. which is a lot uh, higher than the 1% or 2% that uh, that uh, Metaculus nowadays assigns to it, uh, simply because, as one of my friends uh, uh, like made the point, that uh, uh, it, like military campaigns are... like very high volatility events. Once things break in one direction or another, then they can go uh, very rapidly in that direction, essentially. Mm. Um, so like, like when, um, well, like, like in the financial world to some extent. Uh, so uh, I don't actually fully exclude this possibility, especially if, uh, if um, I, mean, I mean, if Russia starts actually doing a world economy for deal, not 5% of GDP on the military, but 10%, 15%, uh, which is uh, um, 
which is, I mean, I mean, the U.S. is spending 14% of GDP on the military during the Korean War, just for comparison. So it's not as if it's something that's like completely unattainable, although it's going to become harder, in my opinion, this year, simply because the uh, uh, sanctions will continue to bite. Plus, uh, we're probably looking at a global recession, and it's much harder to increase military spending at a time when the GDP and consumer living standards are falling, uh, as opposed to when they're uh, stagnant at the high plateau, which was the case for Russia in 2022. But yes, that aside, if, if there's uh, a major increase in the war economy, assuming that there's a further wave of, mobil- of mobilization in January, February, or assuming that uh, there's no war economy, but that China uh, decides to supply it on a NATO level scale, then yeah, I think that Russia will win. And even if none of that or most of that doesn't happen, there's still a chance that Ukraine takes anyway simply because, uh, well, they uh, they run out of the manpower and state capacity is uh, is too low to start uh, uh, conscripting. Because right now, if you get a summons in Ukraine and in Russia for that matter, uh, then uh, whether you turn up or not is actually in practice, no, not not in, in the law, but in practice, it's still very much an optional thing. Uh, but uh, eventually, once you run out of people who uh, go there willingly or semi-willingly to the front, uh, then you have to start mobilizing and scripting them in a more coercive fashion. And whether Ukraine, whether Russia for that matter, actually has the capacity uh, to do that, I'm actually like, pretty skeptical about it because uh, the modern world uh, it's, it's now, now seems that it's, it's much less bloodthirsty or and, nationalist than it was in like the 1940s during the world war during the world war either uh world war two world war one either the the other point i I made is that manpower is uh, like the the role of manpower is uh, is less now than it was in the world wars and uh, for the record i mean i've read quite a bit about world war two world war one so um, that has actually ironically been uh been bad for me because it because like a lot of things they are not very compatible, actually, so they turned out to be false friends. But still, uh, one thing that uh, the world wars did, did show is the uh, sort of like the cardinal importance of manpower ratios. Uh, the single biggest change on the Eastern Front in World War Two was that the manpower ratio uh, in the armies, uh, or frontline armies of, of the Soviet Union and the Germany, they went from one to one in 1941 uh, up to uh, two to one in favor of the Soviet Union uh, by summer, late summer uh, uh, 1943. And from that point on, uh, the USSR, I mean, it was uh, being driven back by the uh, sort of like the much more capable Germans in 1941 when manpower was equal. And uh, then they sort of like, uh, by the time it reached 1.5, uh, they managed to hold them at Stalingrad. And uh, from late 1943, it was more or less incessant, uh, unceasing Soviet advances by the time it reached 2 to 1 and then 3 to 1 by, by 1944. Uh, so by late 1944. Uh, so manpower is very important. And if uh, there's a further wave of mobilization, so the, after the current wave of, uh, after this current mobilization, once all the people uh, currently in training join, join the Russian military, uh, the, 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 the front lines, Russia will probably have something like a 1.3, 1.4, uh, superiority in manpower uh, at the front over Ukraine. And if there's another wave of mobilization after that, uh, then it could increase to as high as two to one by, by, well, the, the summer. 
Uh, and two to one is uh, again just doing the analogy with World War Two, the the point at which you have a uh, numerical superiority across pretty much the entire front and can uh, uh, can start going forwards. Well, I mean, assuming uh, assuming like it's like more or less technological parity. Okay, so, uh, so um, if, that, if, if 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 that happens uh, and if those sort of like World War comparisons are still somewhat relevant. Uh, then, then that could happen, which is bullish for Russia. But as I said, there's also many, many reasons to think that uh, that um, uh, that the Kremlins are just wa- waging this this war in a very serious manner relative to the world wars, or even like like five percent of GDP, so kind of stuff. So I, again, I'm I'm sort of very wary of uh, making uh, uh, concrete claims nowadays, simply because. Uh, I've uh, like the entire past year essentially. I've um, been overestimating their uh, capacities and intellectual acuity. So, um, my final uh, assessment, uh, I would say right now, is that ten uh, percent of a uh, Russian victory, which which I define as uh, well, uh, like actually uh, taking the bulk of Novorossiya. Uh, I'd give a 20% chance of a Ukrainian victory, which I'd define as uh, taking back the corridor, taking back uh, uh, Crimea, uh, Donbass, probably. Uh, and, uh, well, loosely speaking, and probably a 70% chance that uh, it's just this um, more like indefinitely more or less static additional grind fest. Uh, plus or minus along the current border. Maybe Russia advances a bit and Donbass finally takes Bakhmut. You know, like in those uh, wars in Warhammer 40k where it takes like centuries to to uh, take a single city on some, some planet. Like that kind of that mood. Uh, so um, perhaps perhaps Ukraine advances a bit uh, further north, uh, down Svatova. Uh, but things remain more unchanged. I think that that scenario is the likeliest one, probably more than 50% in my assessment. So you, you're pretty confident that this, it's going to be a stalemate that eventually ends in a peace deal or that just becomes frozen like Korea? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not too uh, uh, sort of keen on making hard projections right now. But I do foresee a situation in which uh, the Kremlins are basically signaling through their actions or rather lack of actions that uh, they are not going to, they're not interested in waging a total war. Uh, to They're just basically hoping that uh, to do the bare minimum they can to avoid a catastrophic defeat uh, in, the, in, the, in Ukraine while actually not sort of like militarizing the economy or society in any way or ideologically mobilizing the people. Because again, I mean, Putin, I mean, from the beginning, uh, people, Zelensky has been saying that uh, no surrender, uh, we're not stopping fighting and, until the Russians are driven out of Crimea, out of Donbass even. Uh, so, um, uh, but but the advantage of, of the sort of like maximalist rhetoric is that at least the Ukrainian soldiers knows what he's fighting for. Uh, and that's a big morale booster. Whereas um, uh, the people like Putin, they keep on uh, Doing like like the latest thing that uh, we had unilateral ceasefire. Uh, there's like rain deals. There's that uh, ammonia pipeline, uh, and uh, like basically another uh, like even apart from the lack of uh, industrial mobilization and the very 
uh, muted for now levels of manpower mobilization. There's just uh, no ideological mobilization. And I'm increasingly coming to the view that uh, ideological mobilization is something that the very ideologically risk-averse Kremlins uh, simply might even pref- might even view that even as uh, uh, might even view a defeat as preferable uh, to a uh, nationalist uh, uh, loaded uh, ideological mobilization. Uh, uh, so uh, we we need to keep to keep that in mind. So in between, if if these sort of like conditions are, are fulfilled, if if uh, Russia doesn't mobilize cardinally in, in these sort of like these these sectors, manpower, industrial, ideological, uh, uh, and if uh, Ukraine uh, sort of I mean its permanent problem is that it it faces manpower constraints because it has mainly has four to five. Uh, uh, times fewer people than Russia, and if uh, the West doesn't start uh, supplying them with uh, with uh, weapons and like really uh, like like top uh, top shelf weapons, uh, the, like in on a on a large scale, uh, then uh, uh, the uh, I mean one thing that's bullish for Russia is that to date uh, Ukraine hasn't made successful big offensives. Uh, where it didn't enjoy manpower uh, superiority. In Kharkov, uh, there were two and a half times as many Ukrainians as there were Russians defending. And uh, in Kherson, uh, the Russians were due. It wasn't, it wasn't actually a, a pitched battle, but the Russians retreated behind the Dnieper. Uh, so uh, if, uh, if um, uh, Ukraine lacks this defensive capacity and is uh, hobbled by the, uh, like the fundamental manpower disparity, it uh, uh, it it inherently has with respect to Russia, and if at the same time Russia, like Putin, keeps Russia in a sort of like a limbo state where it's not it's not really fighting a war, but it's not really not fighting it at the same time, like neither neither war nor peace. Uh, then uh, yeah, uh, in my opinion, the the sort of like the default state is just a. Uh, a uh, war of attrition in which both sides lose 50 to 100,000 men per year and eventually society will, will get tired of it and uh, disgruntled by it and uh, uh, and things will uh, uh, will um, well sort of uh, recede to uh, uh, to the point where where the front line eventually freezes and there's some kind of deal around it interesting so okay, in the last couple of minutes then of our discussion, if you had to um, sum up the case against what you call glue sniffers on Z Twitter, what would that be? What are the what are the points they're missing? Um, I think they just don't have a very realistic. Uh, I mean, two things. First, I don't think they have a very realistic um, like idea about how the world works in in very basic ways. I mean, they were pushing this thing about Russia freezing uh, Europe to death during this winter. I mean, even I assumed, I mean, my sort of assumption on Russia's gas weapon uh, was that it would uh, sort of create some inconveniences for Europeans this winter, uh, but that it would become uh, irrelevant after the second winter. And if like a few hundred uh, poor people uh, or elderly froze to death uh, on account of this, well, I mean, it's not a big deal. If anything, it would just make them more pissed off at Russia. But well, well, actually, in reality, what happened, it's been a total nothing burger. Like little, I mean, literally, the German gas tanks are 90% full right now, and it's already approaching mid-January. 
That's the first thing. Uh, I mean, I mean, I mean, you can you can repeat this. Uh, uh, that they keep claiming that the U- U.S. is is going to go bankrupt or whatever, even though it's it's sort of uh, the what it's spending on Ukraine is is, is well pocket change essentially as a percentage of its budget, like in the big picture. I mean, stuff like this. And uh, the other thing is they they take a lot of uh, Russian claims at face value. So, for instance, recently a um, Hymas like uh, killed uh, approximately 140 uh, oh, 140 uh, Russian um, uh, mobics in uh, uh, close to Donetsk a few days ago uh, because the the uh, commanders were stupid and they concentrated the troops even though they knew that they were within Hymas range they concentrated them there for a long time and actually kept a uh, uh, a uh, um, like a storage space full of explosives close to that building. Uh, so eleven months in, and they keep doing these uh, like like really retarded, stupid, and unexplainable mistakes. Is just another thing making me bearish, by the way, about the nationalities prospects. But anyway, uh, that happened. And now today, uh, Knafenkov uh, has claimed that uh, Russia carried out a so-called revenge strike on on Ukrainian positions, and that six hundred uh, Ukrainian soldiers were killed, were demilitarized, uh, with uh, like. Like basically no video or photographic evidence from from like the Ukrainian uh, side, and it's basically explained that the Ukrainians have bad information control, which again is is just ridiculous. I mean, if 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 you made like that big, then it would be uh, all over Telegram and Twitter. Uh, so, but uh, but people are posting this like Asia geopolitics. Uh, uh, this is an example just from today, and people are unironically. Uh, they're tweeting it and agreeing with it uh, on on much of that Twitter. Uh, so, like basically, and then this the unrealistic Im- image of how the world works, and uh, no critical, but very very scant critical faculty, in my opinion, from what I can see. I mean, the thing about uh, about um, like the strikes on Ukrainian concentrations, there's even sort of like a meme on. Uh, uh, on uh, Russian military Twitter, the more skeptical uh, sort of um, side of it, uh, not the Z head side, which uh, which goes something like uh, like uh, two hundred uh, Ukrainian nationalists uh, uh, calibrated uh, with, with like an image of a green Konashenkov, and that's just basically mocking this meme where they keep coming up with these claims of of uh, like like vast numbers of of Ukrainian. Troops getting killed by by caliber strikes uh, with no evidence. I mean, there there was like some cases of this happening, especially early in the war. Uh, but since then, the Ukrainians have simply mainly learned not to not to concentrate uh, a lot of troops in in single locations. Right. So that brings us to the end. Is there anything you're working on at the moment, whether relating to the Ukraine war or other topics that you want to mention here? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not working uh, on anything uh, related to the to the war. I uh, just uh, just uh, observing it. Uh, uh, sadly, uh, uh, that uh, that it's uh, basically is basically become uh, very retarded and zugzwanged, and there's uh, there's no way out of it. Uh, apparently, uh, short of uh, either, well, as I said, either the she mobilizes on a on a very large scale now because it. it because it's too late to do it uh, like piecemeal, or it starts seeking uh, uh, seeking uh, uh, peace probes, uh, which uh, which 
well, I mean, it's going to happen eventually, and if it's going to happen eventually, then it might as well happen now instead of uh, instead of uh, uh, two hundred or three hundred thousand deaths later. But whatever. Uh, well, I mean, as the guards' personal projects, uh, nothing, as I said, nothing uh, related to the war as such. Uh, uh, basically, hoping to get a uh, to finally get a book written uh, this uh, this um, um, this year about the uh, my idea of the age of multi industrialism. Um, hopefully, finally, uh, this sort of like new. But then again, my uh, my New Year's resolutions have included uh, writing a book for the past several years and uh, hopefully this will be the year in which finally it happens okay well uh, good luck with the book project and uh, thanks for coming on the podcast all right thank you uh well, it was a pleasure being on your, on your podcast <laughs>